Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. To our new listeners, welcome. To our old listeners, welcome back. Another episode of Magical Education awaits you. But first, we would like to say a few words. Nitwit, blubber, oddment, tweak. Podcast nine and three quarters topic of the week is how is masculinity represented in the Harry Potter movies? listeners i'm ria and this week i'm talking about harry potter and i'm Jem, and this week i'll be focusing on newt scamander so a couple <laughs> of episodes ago uh listeners might remember you talked about going to see harry potter and the chamber of secrets played over by the brisbane orchestra yeah um so i just recently went to see that exact same show in melbourne with the melbourne symphony orchestra they had huge big like house banners of all the different all the houses that were like taller than giants they were huge it was amazing but just the whole show was amazing like john williams he's such a master and it was so incredible to be watching harry potter with a live audience like you said for the first time in years i it's been so long since the last time we got to see harry potter in cinema yeah it was just so overwhelming (laughs) there was a moment right at the end like (laughs) because the live music just made it so much more real and vibrant than when I'm watching it like at home on my DVDs when (laughs) Harry's in the Chamber of Secrets and Fawkes comes swooping in to save the day and the music swells and I just started crying I'm like this is incredible I'm so overwhelmed (laughs) I lost it in the final scene when they did the the applause for Hagrid and then it just came up from that everyone the um in the the hall was applauding too for the orchestra it was like oh my god (laughs) there was a big standing ovation when I was there but also in that scene in the Chamber of Secrets where the Riddle's memory gets out Harry's wand and he writes Tom Marvolo Riddle and the words rearranged to say I am Lord Voldemort. There was a person in the row next to me who gasped in shock. <laughs> like they didn't know that was coming. They were like, oh, twist. And I was like, there is a person here tonight, 15 years after this movie came out, who is seeing it for the first time performed with a live symphony and i'm just that's a that's incredible there's still people who are being introduced to the world of harry potter for the first time and being amazed by it i it was so great <laughs> see i i would have assumed that they were just doing that for the laughs <laughs> like it was a, a no, sarcastic it was so cast. genuine <laughs> <laughs> that's so good because it wasn't like the words rearranged. It was like, I am Lord Voldemort. And then they were like, <gasps> it was like the second the letters sort of shifted enough that you could see what was happening. They were like, oh, oh no, like I've figured it out. <laughs> like it's Voldemort. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was so great. <laughs> my only negative for evening was that I had a really similar experience to you where there were 
a big group of people right in front of me who were booing and hissing at the screen every time there was a Slytherin there. And I was like, that is so rude. (laughs) (laughs) Bullying is not the message of Harry Potter, you guys. Knock it off. I mean, I did boo when Snape was on screen. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair enough. (laughs) But every time anything with a Slytherin happened, they were booing. I'm like, why... Shut up. I'm not booing every time there's a Gryffindor on screen. Chill out. And I did actually <laughs> tell you this part. I was walking around with a Slytherin Prefect badge on, like a lot of people were in costume and stuff, and I had all my Harry Potter jewellery. And as I was walking around during intermission, this little kid, a child, saw me, saw my Slytherin Prefect badge, looked me dead in the eye and said, how dare you? <laughs> Why would you speak to me that way? How <laughs> dare he? <laughs> I know. What a rude little fuck. He was wearing a Gryffindor uniform as well. <laughs> you should have said 10 points from Gryffindor for your sass. <laughs> I know. I am a prefect. I love you know. Oh, well. Uh, back on to topic for today. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I chose this topic today because... Of a few reasons. So firstly, back when I was an English major in high school, there was a few topics that I studied, which really influenced the way in which I watch movies and read books. So those topics were uh, the archetypal quest and my science fiction genre study, as well as in my genre study, I looked at uh, texts through the perspective of a gendered lens. So in terms of like looking at stories from the perspective of the hero's journey and the archetypal quest and gender relations. That's a lot of how I digest media now. And so let me just like explain a few of those terms. Okay. So the archetypal quest refers to, uh, sort of the basic bare bones for what you need for an, a quest adventure story. It refers specifically in a lot of cases to one particular story, which is the first written down story that we have like available to us from history called the Epic of Gilgamesh from ancient Mesopotamia. And this story follows the journey of this like king who tries to conquer death because his friend dies and he's so traumatized by it. And so the archetypal quest looks at his journey um, of becoming a hero and like going through all these trials and tribulations and overcoming monsters and, uh, and uh, chaos and all this sort of stuff to better realize himself and come to a better resolution about himself, his life and humanity as a whole. So the archetypal quest is sort of like it's evident in a lot of other movies and books and stories that we see even to today. It's like in terms of um, the main character is confronted with something overwhelming. They have to go through several trials and tribulations to overcome this uh, a monster or a concept that's troubling them. And then they come to a better realization about themselves and y- you learn a moral lesson from the story as well. Is the archetypal yeah, go, quest um, uh, the same thing as the hero's journey? It's a bit different. So the archetypal quest refers to um, the story as a whole. The hero's journey refers to specifically hero of the story. So in the hero's journey, there are a few core characters which are identified as key cliches, which are repeated throughout archetypal quest stories and hero's journey stories. So if you look at it this way, the archetypal quest is like the world that the hero's journey is set in. And it's by world, I mean, it's like the genre, the genre, basically. Um, well, it's like and the hero's the structure, journey. I would imagine it's the structure, the structure of the story. That's the word. Yes, the structure yeah. of the story. Essentially, a huge adventure fantasy quest story. 
they have to find something about themselves or about the world to make a change or to understand something better. And then the hero's journey is the progression of the main character from uh, just a regular person, an ordinary human, to a hero. To look at the hero's journey example, there are so many examples throughout popular media, I would argue including Harry Potter from the Harry Potter series. Everyone knows Star Wars. Um, so I'm just going to go, or, or most people know Star Wars. You can also look at Lord of the Rings. You can look at Aragon. You can look at loads of different things. Toy um, Story. Toy Story is Toy a Story. perfect example of the hero's journey. I actually studied that one it in is. uni. Yeah, it's it's also a good example of the archetypal quest as well. It's it's pretty much, mm-hmm. it's really close to the Epic of Gilgamesh Toy Story. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Toy Story is great, guys. Just stop listening to this podcast. Go watch Toy Story again. <laughs> so in the hero's journey... There are a few key characters, as I mentioned. There's the hero himself, so that's the protagonist, the mentor, Mm -hmm. the ally, the herald, the trickster, the shapeshifter, the guardian, and the shadow. So in the context of Star Wars, we've got our hero, that's Luke Skywalker. Mm -hmm. Um, They're usually young and non-assuming white men with a special gift something interesting about them so they're like kind of like a mary sue in a way it's like oh they're not like other boys they've got something going for them they're meant to be normalized enough that the average audience member which is usually because of the gendered way in which media was constructed throughout centuries and centuries usually meant to be young boys or young men you can already see some gendered patterns in the way that these stories are structured okay so then either something happens to this hero character in some way or it's discovered that they are special, that they're a chosen one. Stories of this nature usually follow a quite a similar structure. Yeah, that's pretty much the gist of the archetypal quest and the hero's journey. If so, <laughs> then comes my studies of gender relations. I was just about to say, what does all of this have to do with masculinity, which is the topic of today's episode? Yeah. When I was doing my gender component of my uh, science fiction study, I was mainly looking at how gender was represented in science fiction stories, but because I'd had this previous uh, study about the archetypal quest and the hero's journey, I couldn't help but apply the gendered lens to that content as well. And looking at the hero's journey and the archetypal quest, there's clearly some very gendered ideas about the expectations upon the hero. The hero's quest, it really is about going from boyhood into manhood, and it's about how to me, looking at it from a gender perspective, it's how boys have to learn how to be strong and to be tough in order to be able to take on the world. Because the archetypal quest, sorry, the hero's journey does tend to have an element of man versus nature and man versus other yeah. men, and which is um a big trope in literature. So yeah, the expectations of the hero in the hero's journey is that he has to put aside his childhood and his past. You'll find in a lot of hero's journey stories um, just listening off the bat here, Aragon and Star Wars, that the hero's family literally gets wiped out. So he has nothing to lose. He, he has to go on this journey. He's got no attachments holding him back to his childhood and his past. He just has to grow up and go out into the world and fight. There's a huge emphasis yeah. on combat and fighting and becoming stronger through violence. In that quest, often the the way that the boys answer the call is that they have to learn how to fight. They have to learn how to fight for other people and learn how to defend themselves. Yeah. And it's it's through violence and aggression, basically, that they're yes. able to become the heroes that they need to be. Mm. And usually the, the specialness, the thing that makes them like the chosen one and better than the average man or, man or boy, is um, a power which gives them a sort of 
eliteness and adeptness in fighting ability. So in terms of um, Aragorn, he has a dragon. He's a dragon rider. In terms of Star Wars, he has the Force, which makes him a a Jedi, which makes him a supreme master fighter, essentially. Usually um, the prowess, which is encouraged in the young hero, is along a, a fighting ability. But as long as it's any sort of ability which differs him in strength from other people, then it's still considered fine. So it could be fighting and violence. It could also be intelligence. So like really encouraging, really saying like, oh, you're smarter than the others and you're going to be the smartest. It's always about becoming the most dominant in whatever particular power the uh, male hero holds. Yeah, in look terms of intelligence, you can look at any superhero movie, any of them. Any of them. Doctor Strange, Iron Man, Batman, mm-hmm. like any of them. They're so all Doctor examples Strange of intelligence. Doctor Strange is your first superhero, really? I know, <laughs> but I was like just thinking of in terms of how intelligence is framed, and he was the first one that came to mind because of his whole. Yeah. He was oh, he's such a good surgeon, yeah. and then like oh, I hate Don't Doctor Strange. Anyway, up. um, shut up. Doctor Strange <laughs> is the worst. It's the worst, but it's still an example of the archetypal quest and the hero's journey. It is. Okay. They all are. So every um, superhero movie is the archetypal are. quest. Yes. Yeah. Looking at the hero's journey as an example of um going from boyhood into manhood is a good idea at how the gender expectations upon masculinity are represented in literature. So boys have to be tough. They have to um, avoid emotional sensitivity or weakness. There are several points in which their weaknesses are threatened and they're basically what they have to do is revert back to their powerful source. So whether it's violence or intelligence and just overcome that weakness again, and then keep going. And then eventually they literally fight themselves in the shadow. <laughs> it's like yeah. so self-destructive. They're, they're fighting a darker version of themselves. I mean, does that really, if you think about it, like if you're fighting the parts of yourself, which are darker and more impulsive and chaotic, is that really overcoming those parts of yourselves? Or is that just making it worse by attacking it with more violence? I don't know. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> if, if you buy into the macho lies of the archetypal quest, it's making yourself stronger by defeating your darker part. Um, yeah. But I disagree. <laughs> In terms of films, because we're talking about the movies today, I wanted to ask first, how is masculinity represented? in films and TV media, particularly around white Eurocentric males, because there's a bit of differentiation when it comes to male people of colour and non-straight males, so LGBTQIA males, etc. Well, God, where is is that representation at all? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, it's very limited representation, and even then it's representation that's put in a very small box. (laughs) So, um... How do you think masculinity is represented in media, particularly film and TV media, for white Eurocentric straight males? Okay, well, we've still got a very traditional, very stereotyped ideal of what it is to be a man. We're mainly focusing on like fantasy and action type movies. Those are the ones that we keep resting and sci-fi yeah. a little bit. When we're, poki- when yeah. we're um, talking about these archetypal quests, like, the examples we keep going to are Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Aragon, any superhero movie. All of these heroes tend to be sort of samey. In terms of the way that they represent masculinity and the ideal of what it is to be male, they're all sort of the same. That We don't see a huge mm-hmm. broad spectrum of um, different sort of traits. They all have the same sort of generally masculine traits. There's certain boxes yeah. which they need to tick, and they usually tick yeah. most of them. I have a list of typically masculine traits. These are ones that I got just 
from Wikipedia, which defined masculine traits <laughs> as those that reinforce gender roles. And I have here yeah. strength and aggression, restricted yeah. emotions, independence mm -hmm. and assertiveness, courage. Mm -hmm. That wasn't specifically there, but I added it. The pursuit of achievement and status, the avoidance of femininity, sex that is yeah. disconnected from intimacy, and homophobia or enforced heterosexuality. Obviously, some of those paint like a really toxic view of masculinity. I'd like to say that you don't have to follow all of those to create an ideal of masculinity, I guess. I just, the point yeah. I want to make is that masculinity can be really, really toxic and controlling and bad, but it doesn't have to be those things. And when I'm talking about masculinity and how it's represented and I'm using like traditional masculinity as a word, I don't want that to be equated with an evil thing or a bad thing or a negative thing. It can be really positive. Sure. I think a lot of these traits, like courage, for example, which I added in, <laughs> like independence and assertiveness <laughs> and stuff can be really positive, good traits that you would want men and women and everyone to exemplify. No, yeah, you made some good points. The sort of traits that you've identified are the sort of things which I always look for as someone who's like studied these sorts of things before. Whenever I watch a new movie or I'm reading a book and I'm looking at it from these perspectives of like the hero's journey in the gendered context. So there are certain things which I sort of questions I ask myself when I'm confronted with a male uh, protagonist. And that's usually um, how is strength represented? And by strength, I mean their most dominant, uh, powerful quality, because it's usually mm -hmm. physical strength, but it can also be intelligence. It can be um, creativity. So in terms of like artistic creativity or uh, like business strength, like they're really good at like uh, running a company or, or being in charge, leadership qualities, things like that. How do they express emotion? It's clear that male characters, of course, and men in general have emotions. Let's be real. They do. It's amazing, guys. Yeah. Incredible. Men have emotions. I know. Controversial statement there, but we're making it. Men have emotions. They um, feel things. And it's wild because the reason that this is controversial is because in a lot of media, emotional expression amongst men is just completely erased. It's either mm -hmm. cut out from the story entirely or covered up in some uh, in a few ways. So emotional expression for, for men typically in media is usually done with angsty brooding. So this is your Batman, your Bruce Wayne's. So Batman and Bruce Wayne is a broken man who has lost his family and his, his response to this, I'm going to fight crime forever. And so he's constantly this very brooding character, which just I mean, okay, I, I like Batman, but like it's it's tiring. Oh, like he needs Batman. to actually he needs to like sort out his emotions <laughs> in a more Batman healthy is way. A, but yeah. Batman is a fantastic character, especially when you're looking at these mm. masculine sort of archetypes, because he's so wrapped up in his own trauma and pain and grief and how he's externalizing all of that in violence. Even though yeah. he's dressed it up as a need to protect his city and protect people. It's really just externalized violence because he's in pain and he needs everybody else to feel that pain. And the greatest thing yeah. about him is that literally all of his problems could be solved if he would just go to therapy. Like if he would just yeah. go to therapy and deal with his trauma, none of this would be happening. I love oh that. <laughs> but that boy yeah. needs to stop. Yeah. So there's one of your emotional expressions for men, which is brooding and that can usually lead to violent outbursts and external violence 
which again is is a sort of a characteristic of toxic masculinity. I mean, that's what a lot of people point to in um, cycles of domestic abuse. Young men who have been abused in the past exert these uh, their trauma through physical violence in the future. It's it's really damaging stuff. Okay, so you've got your brooding, you've got um, humor. So again, this at times it can be okay, like you know the world's an overwhelming place and sometimes all you can do is laugh and that can be healthy sometimes. But when it's all the time and when there's no room for, wow, I should actually address my emotional issues and talk about this with someone or try and solve my problems. Instead, it's just laughed off as, oh, you know, he's a man. He doesn't need to sort that out. It's, it's not a problem for him. He should just be a tough guy. It's bravado. Yeah. He should just be tough and get over it and laugh it off. Um, That's a, a really significant problem. So yeah, you got brooding, you got laughing. And then angry outbursts and violent outbursts. So yeah, this is often when men are challenged in their role as a leader or as a man or when they have lost someone, so when they're grieving, and it will literally just, they'll just start yelling and they'll start hitting walls or hitting other people. And this is how emotional expression is typically demonstrated in media around men. Um, There's another element to that as well, which I think you've skipped over, is that usually the expression of emotions or feelings that can be interpreted as weakness. So like sadness, mourning, empathy, mm. compassion, those, the feminine yeah. emotions, men are only in, allowed to express yeah. those in very specific circumstances, which is usually yes. heightened moments of trauma. So if you go back to the Batman example, again, pretty much every single Batman story ever has a moment where it addresses the fact that he saw his parents killed in front of him. And you'll see yeah. a moment of him being like, my parents are dead, and he'll cry over that, or he'll just have a moment where he acknowledges the mourning of his parents. And if there's another male yeah. character around, like Superman, maybe he'll like silently put his hand on Batman's shoulder and be like, I also acknowledge your pain. But it'll all be done in yeah. silence, because they don't actually yes. talk or work through anything. It's just like, I feel these things, and that's enough, never again. No need to acknowledge it. Yeah. What's also interesting with these scenes, when they show men crying, I often, when I watch movies with these moments of vulnerability from men, these scenes won't last longer than 20 seconds. (laughs) Next time you watch a movie, count it in your head. On average, they're about 15 seconds at the most. That feels about right. Which is just interesting. That's how long you should mourn someone. 15 seconds and then you're done. (laughs) 15 seconds. That's it. You go through the 10 stages of grieving. 15 seconds. (laughs) Um, And I'd just like to point out that emotional expression, the way that it's characterized in terms of uh, uh, brute violence, humor, and brooding, especially in terms of the hero's journey, if you're looking at the hero's journey from the perspective of a journey from boyhood into manhood, it's very damaging that these are the most uh, typical forms of emotional expression which are presented mm. to men and boys through media. Because when these sorts of messages are reinforced in media and because they are reinforced in our social cultures as well, it's when it becomes very damaging. And then I have two other things which I look at. So how does the media portray the male ineptitude in the character? So yeah, sure, maybe he's really talented and really brilliant, but his social skills are like shit so i'm thinking of like the social network right now or um what's another sherlock movie Holmes in, in the this. bbc series sherlock Holmes. oh fucking sherlock Holmes. um yeah, yeah. he's so, so brilliant and smart that he can't possibly relate to another human being ever 
That's another horrible trope. And then lastly, I look for any sort of levels of misogyny. When I talk about misogyny, I talk about how the male characters treat female characters and how they treat other male characters. If they hold male characters to the same standards of traditional and toxic masculinity that they aim to exhibit or that they believe are right. So if they don't allow their male friends to show emotional depth, if they don't allow their male friends to show weakness, if they criticize their male friends for uh, being, quote, feminine or sensitive, end quote. Mm-hmm. And just the way they treat women in their relationships, if they treat men like if they treat them like objects or if they treat them as vulnerable little made of glass people that need to be taken care of twenty four seven, if they disregard the talents of women, if they ignore the potential of women, etc. So those are the sort of things I look for in male characters to see if these sorts of messages from the archetypal quest and the hero's journey are being reinforced. And just some some characters that I've listed here as strong examples, we've mentioned them before Batman, Iron Man. Thor, Doctor Who, Sherlock, Han Solo, Richard Deckard from Blade Runner, Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, and Thorin from The Hobbit. Um, Of course, not all of these characters, I'm not saying that all of these characters are strong, tough, manly men with misogynist attitudes, but they do demonstrate um, certain attributes across the board. It might necessarily be all of the attributes at once, but enough of them that they stand out to me as fitting into these stereotypes. Yeah, all of them, yeah. in their own way, uh, live up to that ideal of traditional masculinity. Some of them in quite yeah. toxic ways and some of them in quite positive, heroic ways. I just want to bring up one more thing, which is like the dichotomy between fantasy action hero men and fantasy action hero boys. And I call this the action man versus the archetypal hero. And so basically the action men are usually typical manly men who are strong and action heroes so like iron man aragorn etc and then your boys are usually the um archetypal heroes so your luke skywalkers and your frodo bagginses and your harry potters Mm -hmm. like usually the action men are already fully developed and the sort of challenges they have to overcome are like middle-aged challenges so it's like um finding love or defeating some sort of lesser enemy whereas the boy is all the weight of the world's put on his shoulders. So he's the chosen one. He has to go through all these trials and tribulations to grow and develop as a man. And then he also might be having to find love as well. So yeah, there's just sort of different levels and expectations put on the action man versus the archetypal boy. Okay. I but- would say the difference there is like the archetypal boy, um, your story is a coming of age story. So you're literally going from childhood yeah. into adulthood and taking on the responsibilities yeah. of adulthood. In this case, it's usually saving the world. That's the responsibility of adulthood. Yeah. But that's because these are heightened <laughs> stories. Um, whereas for yeah. the male character, it's usually like, I already am a man and I already have the assurance and um, confidence and responsibilities of a man, but now I'm needing to step into a different role. And that role might be the role of fatherhood. It might be the role of hero, leader. It might be the role of king, something like that. It's something from... I'm going from everyday man who has no skills and abilities, and now I'm using those to create a greater change in the world. Oh, yeah. The change the world versus save the world. Okay. Yeah. Having said that, I'm interested to see how you think masculinity is represented by movie Harry. All right. So I'll start talking about Harry Potter now. Uh, I don't have Jem's fancy academic ability to deconstruct masculinity in stories because, as I've said, I don't think about masculinity a lot. I'm very focused on women. (laughs) 
for my own reasons. <laughs> um, I read a bit about um, archetypal quests and heroes' journeys and masculinity in the Harry Potter series, and I just sort of formed an opinion. And what I did was I took though that list of masculine traits that I mentioned earlier, which I got from Wikipedia, mm -hmm. and I just tried to go through all of those and see how Harry either uh, exemplified those qualities or he subverted them. And overall, I'm saying most of them he didn't really subvert. I would say that Harry Potter uh, personifies like a pretty traditional view of masculinity, but I wouldn't call it a toxic yeah. one. I would say he, no, uh, though he has his moments and the story has its moments, he's a very typical male coming of age, but he's also a very positive role model for boys and young men. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to go through those points. So first one, strength and aggression. Uh, mm -hmm. Physical strength is not really as much of a focus for Harry as some other heroes because he's a wizard, but a lot of his coming of age is still centered around combat. Harry yeah. Potter, his power and his strength, I would say, a lot of it is really about how he's naturally gifted at dueling and offensive magic, but it's worthy mm -hmm. to note that his go-to spell when he's fighting other wizards is Expelliarmus, so the disarming spell. And uh, another really yeah. another spell that he's really powerful with is the Patronus Charm, which is the shield mm -hmm. made out of love and happiness that defends people from Dementors. I'm really glad you brought that up because Harry's greatest strength, as pointed out by several people, especially Dumbledore, is his love, which is very different love, to the typical archetypal yeah. hero. Often when Harry is fighting people, it's framed in such a way that he's fighting to defend himself or others. So... Mm -hmm. that's a very masculine trait that you're protecting others by fighting for them. Uh, but it's, it's yeah, usually totalism. a really positive sort of way. It's coming from a place of love and a place of friendship and loyalty and bravery. Yeah. Harry never shies away from a fight and he often instigates them, but usually it's when he's provoked. Yes. Harry's not the type to yes. go up and start a punch on with someone because he disagrees with them. But you'll, he does things like he, he chases down Bellatrix at the end of the fifth movie and tries to force her to fight him that's because he's mourning and he's mm. in a moment of great trauma and uh, we don't see it as much in yeah. the movies but in the books he also gets into physical fights over more petty things <laughs> with malfoy usually yes. <laughs> um yeah. and there's also that time that he fought a 60 foot long monster snake with a sword harry gets into some fights <laughs> um, yes he does <laughs> He can also be really aggressive in one year more mm. than any other, as I think most <sighs> listeners would probably be able to guess. There's that one year that the he uh, <laughs> speaks very aggressively to Umbridge. He shouts at his friends. He picks fights. He smashes things. Um, but aside from yeah. Order of the Phoenix. There's like a whole two pages of him just like in all capitals yelling. <laughs> just yelling. And I, I have a lot of theories about that book and about Harry's aggression. and yes angst because i feel like it's Me too. really it's really badly misinterpreted and i do want to talk about that yeah. at some point but for now he's just he's very angry and aggressive in that book uh but it's yes. all the way through in the third movie he blows up his aunt and runs away from home because he can't control his temper basically like obviously the mm -hmm. situation's a bit more nuanced than that but he's aggressive and yeah. he fights people uh restricted yes. emotions this one I wasn't sure how to approach it because Harry Potter as a series is very focused on the themes of love, friendship, kindness, which you've said. Those are Harry mm -hmm. Potter's greatest strengths. And originally I thought that's not really traditionally masculine. That's more of a feminine thing. 
But when I thought about it more, the way that Harry expresses those emotions doesn't subvert typical sort of masculinity. While he cares for his friends, he cares for them by fighting for them, by standing up for what's right. He's not a character that I would describe as being nurturing or soothing. So the way that he expresses the love for his friends is typically masculine. While those softer emotions are his greatest strengths, he doesn't express them in a very feminine way. I feel like I'm criticizing him, but I'm not. Like, I'm just describing (laughs) him. Independence and assertiveness? I don't see Harry as very independent. I see him as way more of a team player, whether that team is himself, Ron and Hermione, the Golden Trio, or whether it's Dumbledore's army or his Quidditch mates. But often it's the case that when things get really hard, uh, like when he has to go toe-to-toe with Voldemort, as he does at the end of every movie, basically, Harry's on his own. There are times when he falls into the trap that so many male action heroes fall into of, no, no, we can't be together. You can't help me. I have to keep you safe by fighting this battle all alone without any support from my loved ones. It's that typical macho. The Peter Parker trap. Yeah. Yeah. The Peter Parker trap. It's it's all superheroes. (laughs) All superheroes do this. We see it when he dumps Ginny and tries to dump Ron and Hermione at the end of six books so he can go off Hawkeye hunting. We also see it in the fifth movie when Umbridge is torturing him and he feels like he he can't reach out to his friends and he can't tell anyone what's happening because if he does, it would be an expression of weakness and Umbridge would somehow have won the little psychological game they're playing. That's not as stressed in the movie as it is in the book, but we do see it happen. Yeah. Um, He He says, I don't want to give Umbridge a satisfaction. Quote. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he's playing some kind of personal game with her, which could so easily be resolved if he would just reach out to other authority figures for help. But no, yeah. he's got to go it alone. He's got to be the independent macho man. Uh, Harry, mm-hmm. he is also very assertive, especially when it comes to his convictions. Things like the fact that he's Dumbledore's yes. man through and through. He is unshakable in those, even when they're misfounded yeah. or misguided. Uh, I think that's lost mm. a little bit in the movies where sometimes he can sort of take a bit of a backseat to Hermione. I think of the three golden trio, Hermione's the more assertive of them. Yeah. Uh, but Harry is also I think there's a good there. point in the movie in uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2, particularly when Aberforth is talking shit about Dumbledore and Harry's like, look, I don't care. We're going into the castle tonight. Like, you're going to help us to get there. Like, he just sort of very much disregarded them and went, look, you know what? I don't give a shit. Here's what yeah. we're doing. I don't care if you tell me it's wrong. I'm doing it. Harry's a really great leader, mm. and that comes across in the books more than in the movies, I felt. But we do see it in the movies. Yeah. And yeah, that's very masculine. Yeah. Courage, the trait that I've added, because I can't believe that courage <laughs> and bravery was not listed on the masculine traits. Come on. We see Harry being courageous all the way through all the movies. Bravery is literally the defining trait of Harry and 90% of his friends. <laughs> So I could go through a dozen examples of him fighting various monsters and dark wizards and just call that typically masculine. But I'd like to draw attention to a different kind of bravery. So one of the major things of Harry Potter, the series, is death. Time and time again throughout the series, we are shown that the bravest thing a person can do is be unafraid of death. Not because like Mm -hmm. you're arrogant and deluded and think you'll never die, which is a trait that you can see in heroes like Thor in the early movies. He's like, He's unafraid of death because he thinks he's invincible. That's not what I'm talking about. You're unafraid of death because you've accepted death as a natural part of life. To the well-organized mind, death is simply the next great adventure. We see that accepting death gives you a level of sort of power 
that people like the dark wizards like Voldemort, they'll just never understand that and they'll never feel it. And it's a power that mm-hmm. you have over them. So I don't know if that's a typically masculine kind of bravery. Usually when you see heroes in fantasy or action ready to face their death, like it's because their story's at the end and over, like Frodo at the end of Lord of the Rings, when he goes to the Grey Havens, that's yeah. he's accepting his own death. Or they're making the big sacrifice play so that somebody else can live. Like in the Avengers movie, when Iron Man faces in his own death, sacrificing himself to get rid of the bomb, that's to protect the people that he loves. So he's not accepting his death because he's ready to die, but because it has to happen so that other people can live. And that's kind of what happens in uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2. Harry accepts his own death to save others, but it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up. I think Harry's acceptance of death is not traditionally masculine. It is a bit of a subversion, because if I'm going to draw back to the original archetypal quest here, so the Epic of Gilgamesh, the whole theme of that story is death and overcoming death. Basically, in the story, Gilgamesh and his friend Enkidu are best mates. They're fighting monsters, good times. Enkidu dies, and Gilgamesh watches him die, and Enkidu describes the afterlife and how horrible and dusty and gross it is. And Gilgamesh freaks out, and he goes on this huge journey to overcome death so that he will become immortal and never die. Mm-hmm. And then he goes through all these trials and tribulations, and he eventually finds out that death is inevitable and that he can't become immortal. And he freaks out and he goes wandering through the desert and he goes back to his kingdom because he's a king. And he yeah. sees the great walls of the kingdom and he says, these will outlive me and this is what life is about, creating something that will last longer than yourself. So that's how he thinks about death and overcoming it. It's very much a masculine ideal of I'll erect things. I hate mm-hmm. to sound sexual, but like I'll literally erect these huge structures that will outlive me and then I'll become immortal through them. It's a different sort of perception of how to overcome death than from what Harry has to yeah. like, I've just accepted that death is a part of life and that, um, like you said, it's about my sacrifice in dying is about protecting the ones I love. It, it's much more of a subversion. Yes, absolutely. Mm. And I would call that a bit more of a feminine trait because I was just about to say what you said, where usually when you're looking at the male characters defeating death, not in a villainous sort of way like Voldemort or Sauron, where they try to defeat death yeah. by living forever. The way that men make themselves immortal is through the erection of statues, through becoming great kings and having their names mm-hmm. passed down through history. Whereas the way that women become immortal is by having children. Uh, let's, uh, yes. we'll, get in, we'll avoid all the horribleness <laughs> of that. But basically, men carve their names on shit, whereas women have kids, raise kids, and those kids bring the character and the ideals and the values of their mothers through into their lives. Yes. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what we're presented in stories. These are traditional gender ideas. These are traditional gender ideas. So the way that Harry is willing to die to save others, to me, seems a bit more feminine because Harry has already achieved that status that most male heroes are trying to achieve of having their name all over everything and going down in history. He's the boy who lived automatically without even trying. Mm -hmm. He didn't, he just achieved that straight away. Knock that off the list. Yeah. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Check and mate every other male hero. (laughs) The way that he achieves immortality, which isn't his goal, but the way that it happens is that he saves others. And those others live on by his Mm -hmm. bravery. The thing I also mentioned is that most male heroes don't start their stories like this. They end their stories like this. They grow to be someone who is able to accept death. 
Harry starts that way, which is amazing to me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look at Chamber of Secrets because I literally mm. just watched the movie a couple of nights ago. Um, Harry's very brave yeah. when he's fighting the basilisk and saving Ginny, but where he shows the most courage is when he's been bitten by the basilisk and he's dying. He doesn't show a yeah. second of fear or hesitation. Ginny wakes up and he just, he tells her he's fine, everything's okay. And then he starts giving her instructions of how to get out of the chamber. Like he knows he's done and he can't help mm. her or go with her. But he's like, you need to get out of here, go back through the passage, get to Ron. Just like trying to reassure her. And then fucking Forks flies over and lands there. And Harry looks <laughs> this bird in the eye and with his dying breath is like, you did great. It's not your fault. I like you did so well. He's using his dying <laughs> breaths to reassure a bird. He's twelve years old. <laughs> I <laughs> Harry is so sweet. It's so well. emotional. <laughs> so like maybe disagree with me that he's not really smashing gender roles in that scene, but like I will not hear a word against how beautiful and brave Harry is. I love him. <laughs> He's such a genuinely um, loving character. That is his quintessential characteristic. And so in that way, I definitely think he subverts the traditional ideas of masculine uh, strength and power. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it's, he's a beautiful character. I love Harry so much. Yeah. I've got a last couple of few points. That was my main argument, but I'll just tick off these last ones before we move on. Uh, the pursuit of achievement and status. The other way that Harry shows those traits in sort of a typically masculine fashion. He's not really after status so much because, as I've said, he's the boy who lived, so what else are you going to do? But he does have that yeah. thirst to prove himself. Harry wants to be recognized yeah. for his achievements. So he tries to earn glory mm -hmm. through things like winning Quidditch matches, winning the House Cup, mm. thinking about entering the Tribe with a tournament and getting glory for Gryffindor House and Hogwarts, that kind of thing. Uh, the avoidance <laughs> of femininity. Harry has a pretty masculine story, like he's the brave male hero who's good at fighting in sports, but I don't see him as someone who's actively avoiding typically feminine activities. I don't think he shies away no. from associating that, with Hermione. Yeah. He doesn't mock her for feminine interests. I don't think that quite fits him. Never really comes up that much. Yeah. But I wouldn't see him as the type to mock Hermione or mock Ron for doing anything particularly feminine. No. No. It's usually in this mm. sort of coming-of-age story, like set in a high school with lots of boys and girls, you would see those really clear gendered activities and Harry expressing his opinion on what the girls are doing and that sort of thing. But we don't really see that in Harry Potter, that Harry's not the sort of the type to be like, oh, I don't want to do girl things. I don't want to be associated with the girls. Yeah. Even in like, uh, the, I would say the most gendered time in the movies would be the Yule Ball in the fourth movie. The fourth movie. And yeah, even in that instance, like the only things I can remember is him being nervous about dancing in front of everyone else mm -hmm. and nervous about having to get a date. He did, uh, he did mock Ron a bit for his dress robes. He's like, is there yeah. a bonnet too? Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's about it. <laughs> they, they do mock um, Ron's robes for being lacy and stuff like that. But I don't mm. think, oh, they do say it looks a bit like a dress, which is dumb because they're wearing robes. All the robes look like dresses. <laughs> but really, it's mostly because yeah. Ron's robes are very out of fashion. Like he looks like an old woman. He doesn't just look like a girl. He looks like a yes. grandmother. <laughs> That's worthy of being mocked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going along those sort of lines. In Goblet of Fire, yeah, it's not that he's trying to avoid femininity. He's 
reached no he's not even quite reached the age yet where he wants to be dating he's just suddenly thrust into this world of you need to attend the yule ball with a date and suddenly he has to deal with girls in a different sort of way that he ever has before and it's awkward and he doesn't know what to do Mm. leading to the next masculine trait sex disconnected from intimacy just straight up it doesn't apply because harry's a child for most of the series he yeah we we see him dealing with romantic attraction in the later movies but there's no sexual element to his interest in women as it is portrayed on the screen like i'm not going to speculate what's going on in his head we never see him get past anything awkward kisses and i don't interpret him as a character as someone who would be very interested in sex that is disconnected from intimacy no he'd be a very tender lover I don't, I don't see Harry as being someone who's interested in having sex with someone he's not in love with. <laughs> no, yeah, he's yeah, he's a traditionalist like that. <laughs> he's just okay. he's so looking for love. Um, Final point: homophobia and enforced heterosexuality. According to J.K., homosexuality is not relevant to Harry's journey, so we don't really know how he feels about this. <laughs> but I will physically yeah. fight anyone who claims Harry's homophobic. <laughs> I have some opinions yeah, on I, this. I, we'll I, there's no. Episode. I don't think there's any evidence to say that he is. Yeah, um, of course not. Yeah, I'll just conclude by saying that, repeating what I said basically, I think the ideal of masculinity presented by Harry Potter is very traditional. Uh, not necessarily negative, though. He does subvert a couple of things. No. While he's not really smashing any barriers down, he's not a bad role model for young men. I would say overall he's a very positive and good role model for young men. Yeah, great. <laughs> now let's great. talk about Newt. Okay. It's very um, different to Harry. Newt Scamander. Okay. I, I've got a sort of different way of like talking about Newt's masculinity to what you did, where you were sort of checking off characteristic boxes. Yeah. Basically, what I've done first is I've tried to consider how Newt fits in with the stereotypes that I mentioned before of the action man and the archetypal boy, because mm-hmm. essentially when you look at a fantasy movie, a fantasy adventure movie, those are the sort of two male archetypes that you'd see. And Newt doesn't really fit either of those archetypes. He's more of a character that would be seen perhaps as like the sidekick or the ally to the the hero where he's got like the, I suppose, the the friendliness and the supportiveness, Mm -hmm. the emotional support, which can come to a male hero through a side character. So first I'm just going to talk about what I was expecting of Newt Scamander before I saw the movie. Mm -hmm. So of course, before I'd seen uh, Fantastic Beasts, I'd read the textbook. I hadn't read the script at all, but like I'd heard some rumors about what was going on. And the people who'd seen it before me had expressed that they didn't really like Newt. They said things like, oh, he was just sort of awkward and weird. He didn't really look in anyone's eyes. He was all like shy and like uh, kind of weak. And I was like, oh, okay. So I I wasn't really sure how much a character like that would be able to carry the weight of the movie, especially a franchise like Harry Potter. But my own expectations before I'd heard all of this for a character like Newt Scamander, based on what I'd seen in terms of like, his image, so the f- the photographs from on set and um, the the book that I'd read, the textbook, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, was sort of a character which was like a mix between a Nigel Thornbury and a Doctor Who, <laughs> where it was like yeah. um, a whimsical, like charismatic, bit of a loony character, really into animals and really passionate about animals and a bit like a Doctor Who, maybe carrying a slight bit of arrogance, like, oh, um these wizards, they don't give a shit about animals, but they should be more caring and they should they should care about what these animals can give us. And, you know, definitely holding a clear sense of whimsy and being a comedic character where he's like, 
oh, it just pulls like a bird out of his sleeve and throws. Like that, that does happen in the movie, but it's not a whimsy moment. No. Like it's a, yeah, I'll come back to that. Yeah, I really so yeah, I was definitely like, seeing that. Um, uh, yeah, like a strong sort of male character, but like with more of a scholarly sort of bent than a, like a traditional warrior sort of person. So like a Doctor Who character. Yeah, yeah, like a Doctor Who character, but more like a, a tenth Doctor, a David Tennant Doctor. I see him compared to yeah. Um, yeah. Eleven quite often, and I think they're very dissimilar. Yeah, definitely more of a tenth Doctor vibe with a Nigel Thornbury esque interest in animals. Yeah. Um, I think Nigel Thornbury might be too vague a reference, but hopefully some people understand what from, I mean. From okay. the wild Thornberries, <laughs> so, um, people, people know. People know Nigel Thornberry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I also had the same sort of thing as you, that he was quite dull and boring and nobody connected with him and he was just a weirdo, basically. Yeah, yeah, I had all these sort of ideas and stereotypes going in my head before I saw the movie. And then when I actually saw the movie, I was absolutely um, – shocked by the mm-hmm. the character of newt that was presented and i loved him i thought it, this is like such a great character and when i watched the movie i instantly thought he's on the spectrum like oh. it was just clear to me like oh he's of course. like that was instantly how i from the first scene where he's sitting on the boat and he's just sort of like talking to the creatures in the suitcase and the way the whole um his mannerisms his behaviorisms the way that he was blocked mm-hmm. i instantly thought he's on the spectrum on some level or maybe he like an anxiety disorder or something. I mean, of course these things haven't been confirmed. That's just how I sort of interpreted his character as an instinct. Um, And that's how so many people have interpreted his character as well. I tend to be looking for diversity in character. So sometimes I can see it where it was never meant to be, but so many people and reviewers (laughs) and uh, people who are on the spectrum have looked at Newt and said, Oh, I recognize that those traits in this character so i don't think it's out of out of line to be saying that so let's just talk about newt's characterization in general the ways that i would pinpoint newt's character first and foremost is a nurturing aspect Mm -hmm. which is very different for a masculine for a male character in a fantasy action adventure movie yeah his main trait i would say is nurturing because you see several times his goal in life is to protect animals like people could say that his goal in life is to write textbooks about animals and to educate about animals i think that is sort of fitting into his central goal of protecting animals so it's a very much like there are several moments where he's literally bottle feeding an animal as he walks oh, along he walks that. up to um he walks up to the okami and picks it up and he's like mummy's here mummy's here and is very much like he just wants the best for these creatures yeah so that nurturing aspect really shone through in his character the next trait that I would say, which really defines Newt, would be a sense of um, disconnect from like the rest of the world. Like he yeah. feels very out of place, and that comes across in the way that Eddie Redmayne portrayed him, and in the way that he describes himself. So, like, I think the most comfortable that we saw Newt throughout the, that entire movie was when he was doing the mating dance with the rumpet. <laughs> oh, absolutely! He looked His completely. He looks completely in his element. Like it was just so natural to him. And it was, and I was expecting to like be completely losing my head during that scene because it's like, he's doing a completely ridiculous mating dance. I laughed a bit like, Oh my God, this is strange. But then it's like, no, he just, he, he's just doing what he does. This is just yeah. him. And then like, he looked so um just sort of pleased and at peace when he was in his trunk, caring for all the animals and just interacting with the animals. And then counter that to when Newt is just walking around uh, New York and interacting with human beings and wizards and, and muggles alike. 
um, there's certainly this great disconnect to his human social interaction with his animal social interaction, which I found very interesting. Some people might attribute that to um, his being on the spectrum, if that is true about him. We don't know yet. You talked about the fact that he's very protective of his animals. It's really worth pointing out that the way that he's protective of those animals and the way that he cares for them is by nurturing them. So it's a very feminine way that he cares for them. Compare that to the more masculine way that Harry Potter cares for his friends, which is, as I was saying earlier, he fights for his friends. He stands up for his friends. He doesn't like hold his friends in his arms and Mm. bottle feed them and that sort of thing. It's it's a very different way (laughs) that love Mm. for the the people or the creatures that he loves is expressed. There are moments uh, with both of these, Harry and Newt, with both of these characters, which go against that norm. So that in terms of the movies, I can think of a moment when Hermione was being really upset about Ron and Lavender being together and Harry comforted her being like, oh, you know, yeah. it feels pretty shit, it feels like this. And then there's a moment in uh, Fantastic Beasts in which the Makusa is threatening to take away Newt's creatures and Newt loses it. He like that's the only time that he raises his voice throughout the entire movie. He's like, "Don't harm them! Don't hurt them!" Like you know, yeah. he just starts freaking out, and that's kind of like an, an angry outburst, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could, it could be more of a, a sad or weak out. A weak. I just instantly associated sadness with weakness. Wow, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> um, it could be like a a desperate cry, but yeah, yeah. um, no, it's clearly an outburst. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm talking so, about like um, overall trends, obviously. All people have both masculine and feminine traits and they all do everything. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, overall trends, not literally every single instance is shaped by these ideals. This sort of brings me to Newt's brand of masculinity, which I think is a really subverting and positive representation of masculinity that we never never really see, especially in fantasy action films. And I think his masculinity is centered around nurturing uh, for creatures, arguably, which are lesser than him and more vulnerable than him. So there, there comes a protectionist element into that, which could be considered paternalistic, but it is still very focused around nurturing and protecting those creatures purely for those creatures just being beautiful, wonderful creatures, not for what the creatures can give us and what I get from the creatures, but because he just cares about the creatures. And in terms of how he treats other people with kindness and nervousness he's like he's obviously nervous around other people but he always treats them with kindness and respect especially muggles and like there's no sort of distinction there between muggles or people of different genders or races or anything Mm -hmm. and yeah a huge sense of vulnerability that we see in part of him being disconnected from people socially but we see that there's a background of him coming from perhaps being bullied in hogwarts like there's sort of hints there to the fact that he was a bit of a bit of a loner a bit isolated while he was being educated, yeah, um, that he's a bit of an outcast in the magical community. Yeah, like obviously his brother is a war hero and people recognize the Scamander name for his brother and his actions as this great war hero. Whereas when Newt Scamander's mentioned, it's like, oh, that menace, you know, that loon running around with animals. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously sort of disregarded. And then if we look at how Newt's strengths are exemplified, it's mainly in those characteristics if you're looking at how Newt uses violence, he just doesn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh. I can't think of an instance He's incredible. in which he uses violence. So we come to the the, um, the climax of the movie. We've got the monster, uh, monster in quotations, because the monster turns out to be a victim of abuse, mm-hmm. a child who was has been repressed and oppressed his entire life. Really, the monster is Grindelwald, but we're not going to get into that yet. So the the whole conflict of this movie is that 
this obscurus is causing mayhem, but this, the obscurus needs to be saved. It needs to be helped. Mm. And Newt tries to do that. He doesn't try and fight the obscurus or even to try and fight it to disable it and then try and calm it down. His first response is, I'm not going to hurt you. I just want to help you. And like, he just tries to talk the obscurus into becoming back to uh, Credence and then trying to help Credence from there. Of course, it doesn't work because of all the violence ensues when the Makusa and Grindelwald shows up. Mm. So it's a really, it's just it's such a tragic story. Like he, his first response is to instantly try and help this, this person. Mm-hmm. And he fails. There's no trying to defeat and kill the monster. It's all about trying to care for it, trying to nurture it, trying to save it. Coming back to uh, Newt's potential for being on, on the spectrum or for having anxiety disorder. Now, it hasn't been confirmed at all by Warner Bros. or JK or by Eddie Redmayne, who portrayed the character. I mean, a lot of people who are autistic or on the spectrum or have anxiety disorder have talked about how they see their sort of characteristics in Newt. Particularly, people have pointed to the scene in which Newt says to Jacob Kowalski, it's like, oh no, I annoy people. Like, I, I don't um, get along with people too well. However, it, it's quite a positive representation of autism and anxiety disorders because although Newt feels this way, about himself. He feels that he annoys people and there is clearly sort of a social disconnect in the way that he interacts with people. He still makes friends throughout the movie. He makes three very strong friends. Like everyone that he interacts with, except for Grindelwald in disguise, and Grindelwald's just an inherently evil character and we don't even go there. Everyone he interacts with turns out liking him. (laughs) It's such a positive representation of like, look, his autism, if he does have autism, isn't expressed in such a way as it's like a barrier that he needs to overcome in order yeah. to be, in quotes, normal and to make friends, which is huge. Because the way that on the spectrum disorders and anxiety disorders are often represented in movies, especially for male characters, is that they have to, it's, it's one of the barriers they have to overcome to be tough and to be normal, like the, normal, in quotes, like the other people and to, to make friends, to get the girl. And so showing Newt's um, behaviorisms and autism in that way is so positive and so groundbreaking. And I'm not sure if it was an intentional. Maybe it wasn't. Um, if it wasn't, I hope that they say, look, maybe, it may- like, yeah, he is autistic. Because, like, it's, it's been received that way by so many and it's such a positive representation that I think they could do a lot, a lot of good out of it. But in the past, <laughs> the Harry Potter universe has been criticised for the way that it approaches mental health issues and behavioural disorders in saying like there has been hints from JK and from contributors to the Harry Potter universe that mental disorders and mental health issues aren't really a thing Mm -hmm. in the Harry Potter universe because they are quote fixed by magic, which is a very problematic thing to say. I feel like just on Newt being on the spectrum, I feel like they've done the typical Harry Potter thing where we're going to take this minority or this identity and we'll express it through a very, very obvious, clear analogy, but we won't specifically yeah. show it. So, for example, Remus Lupin is a gay man with AIDS, but he's not a gay man with AIDS. He's a yes. werewolf. But clearly yeah. he represents a gay man with AIDS. That's what he is. HIV positive yeah. man is what I should be saying. Newt, clearly everything about his portrayal and his characterization is that he is someone who's on the spectrum. But they don't want to specifically say that in the text. They just want to let us interpret that. So basically, um, 
to conclude about Newt's masculinity, I believe that he subverted a lot of the traditional notions about how masculinity is represented in action fantasy movies and that he created quite a positive representation for men and boys and for people on the spectrum as well. And that we should be seeing more characters like him in movies. Like it's, it's like he's beloved by a lot of people, but also there has been a lot of um, critique from a lot of different places towards a Fantastic Beast movie and how active Newt is as a protagonist and whether he can carry on the responsibilities and role of a action hero star in, in the upcoming franchise, which is like four more movies. So there's a lot of concern that he might be able to do that. And that's expected because he is a character which really subverts the traditional ideas of what we think of as an action fantasy hero. I mean, he's hoping that they keep him around. I think, I think they will. I think JK loves Newt as much as fans do. So she'll push for that. And um, yeah, that's basically all I've got to say about Newt. I yeah. agree with you on that. I feel like JK really will push to keep Newt, but I am worried about that backlash because so many people just hated him and thought he was a terrible character mm. for reasons that are probably more grounded in their own biases than on anything that Newt did actually, actually did on the screen because I thought he was an incredibly yeah. strong leading character. He was a very, very different lead character, mm. different from any other male lead I can think of off the top of my head. But I don't think that he was weak or boring or that he made the movie bad. He was just different. No. And it was it was refreshing and it was so fantastic to see him. Yeah. Yeah, I love Newt. We we're guaranteed that he will be the protagonist of the next movie. But of the next three mm. 20? How many more are we getting after that? I have heard yeah. rumours that depending on how he's received in the next movie, he might be stepping down as protagonist and the story will shift focus to a different yeah. character, which I would assume would be either Newt's brother or maybe Albus Dumbledore. Those would be the two who leap out to me as possibilities. Maybe even Credence. My worry in that the next movie will determine whether Newt continues as, a, as the protagonist for the franchise is that what the directors might insist upon doing is really changing Newt's character mm. to make him more conducive to the ideas that we have of a traditional male hero and that they might drastically change his character from what we've been enjoying so far. Yeah. Which, is which so you know, sad. it might turn out okay in that the fact that he's still like a really good character, but it'll just be really disappointing in terms of like how well he's been received and how positively he's been received with being a different sort of male character mm. that they would just you know, he would just, they would just sell him out and make him just like other characters. Yeah. It's, that's, that's my concern. It's not a bad thing if we have a really good positive example of like traditional masculinity, like a Harry Potter character. Right. He is in no way a bad yeah. character or a bad thing. But if you take a character yeah. like Newt Scamander that's showing us a different way to be male and to be masculine by having empathy and nurturing being your primary traits and still being a really strong, really mm. likable character. It's it's a tragedy if they take that away from us to give us more of the same yeah. thing we can get from a dozen different other movies. Newt, mm. As I've said, Newt is so unique. He's the only character that I can think of who's like this in a leading role in a fantasy movie. Yeah. Okay, well, I've been Jem, your Newt-loving and concerned for the future host. <laughs> I have been Rhea, your <laughs> equally newt-loving and deeply concerned for the future host. See you guys. Thanks for listening to Podcast 9 and 3 Quarters. This show is written and edited by Rhea and Jem. 
You can send us an email at nine and three quarters podcast at gmail.com or talk to us separately. Me on our Tumblr page, podcast nine and three quarters and Ria is on her blog, prostintedglasses.com. Please feel free to send us theories or ask us questions and bombard us with so many messages that we go mad and run away to a hut on a rock in the middle of the sea just to avoid them. Our logo art is by Winged Corgi. Find more of her art at wingedcorgi.tumblr.com. While I was researching for this episode, I found this great YouTube channel called The Pop Culture Detective, which investigates the representations of masculinity in media and specifically made a video about Newt Scamander. So go check that out. Highly recommend. This week's intro music was Main Titles, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them by James Newton Howard. And our outro music was Hedwig's Theme by John Williams. You'll hear from us again in two weeks' time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.